is absolutely wild as Fern Gagne's all-star wrestling goes coast to coast and continent to continent. The greatest wrestlers in the world. He may be an apprentice carpenter, but I guarantee you he is a seasoned ring veteran. I've been hit with bar stools, bar rags, bar maids. I'm talking to you! They're scared that Hulkamania is still running wild. Oh, yeah. I got a big fat wife and nine kids at home, and I gotta feed them. And take a look at Jesse the body in real life. Open your hand once if you would. You want to see it? <laughs> this is absolutely unbelievable. Totally, completely out of control. He's coming in over the top. Hey! Look out! Howdy ho, everybody. Welcome in to AWA Unleashed. Some would call us the major league of professional podcasting. Wrestling-wise, I say we are the preeminent. I'm doing the, the Joe Chupik. Preeminent AWA podcast. Yes, I've got the preeminent t-shirt. If you want it, we'll, uh, we'll put the link down uh, below a little bit. I'm not going to do a whole lot of fussing here on the front side, guys, because this is one... When we're talking about guests, I'm, you know what? We'll get to the promoting and everything a little bit later on. But when we talk about guests, there are very few people in this business that have done as much as our next guest. And you can know him under a, a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of different names. But Joe Chupik and uh, Mick Karsh, let me say this is not going to be a good podcast. This is not going to be a great podcast. You know where I'm going. This is going to be a fabulous one. That's great. That's uh, I, I see what you did there. I've been waiting all day. I've been waiting all day to say that. You were I, up all night thinking that up, weren't you? No, no dude, doubt. Hey, you know how many thoughts go through this head? Not very many. When I come up with a good one, if I go to sleep, it's going to be gone in the morning. Well, I'll have to say that that was a gooder intro, Chris. That was a gooder. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to all the all the fun stuff at the end. But uh, um, hey, let's get right into it. Let's go right into it, Mick. Uh, you want to you want to introduce it? Absolutely. You know, you, you said it right on the head, Chris. Uh, talk about a guy who's done everything in the business four decades in professional wrestling, how many different hats, how many different personas, but the one constant that I hear about our guest is what a terrific guy he is and how respected he is in the professional wrestling business. So let's bring him in from Florida, from sunny, you know, I, Steve, this is just not fair. Steve, Kern, <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're sitting out there and, uh, you know, we're waiting for the next blizzard or sleet storm or something. I, I sneet. answer you. Yeah, sneet. Snow and sleet. Sneet. Sneet. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. But Steve Kern, it is such a pleasure to have you here on this podcast. <laughs> we're going to be talking a little bit about your, your overall career, but kind of emphasize the time in the AWA, obviously. Okay. Um, so great to you look terrific. Well, thanks. I feel great. I mean, you know, I'm I'm blessed. It's as simple as that. I mean, you know, I'm 72 years old. I'll be 73 in September, and I'm surrounded by so many of my peers that are in, you know, hurting positions and bad injuries from the past. And you know, I mean, Tampa Bay is a um, 
a local area here that we we um, encompass probably 40 guys and girls from the past and from the present that are living in this area. So I'm subject to all of them and I see them. I mean, you know, I almost feel guilty sometimes when I don't show up with a cane. I mean, you know, everybody's walking around on a cane. Everybody, I mean, you know, like Hulkster, he lives close by and um, he's had 10 back surgeries. And bless his heart, he just can't get a break. Brian Blair's had like five back surgeries. He's within a mile of me. So I almost feel guilty, but I tell every one of them, and it's kind of a running joke with all my friends that when they say, man, I don't know, you know, you did a lot, you took a lot of bumps. How come you're not crippled? And I go, I didn't take backdrops. That was a dumb, that was the dumbest move. In wrestling, to me, when a guy whip you in the rope, bend over, and then shoot you straight up in the air, and you are free falling, I'm not an acrobat. And every time I ever did it when I was young, it was never pretty. It was end over end, landed on my hip, landed on my head, landed. And finally, I just scratched that. So here I am. Well, but I don't want to get to bragging too much because then i'll get up from this walk out break my hip or something so (laughs) let's talk i mean the the punishment and the the grind that's involved with professional wrestling let's go way back let's talk about your how you got interested in becoming a professional wrestler and then who trained you okay I'll try to condense it as much as possible, but at the same time, first of all, my dad was a prisoner of war in Vietnam from the time I was 13 to 21. Um, He was a two-time prisoner of war, one of the only two men in history to be a POW in Germany in World War II at age 19, and then later on be shot down over Vietnam at 39, flying an F-4. He was the first one ever shot down with a SAM missile, and he was the 14th POW. So at 13 years old, I was told by a full colonel that drug me down my hall to tell me my dad was dead that day. He said, today, you're the man of your family. And I'm 13 years old. I'm just like any other kid. And I'm going, what do you mean the man of my family? I said, you know, my dad's dead. And this was a miscalculation by the United States Air Force at the time because at when they hit him with the SAM missile, there was two people in my dad's plane. My dad was a pilot, and he had a guy sitting behind him. The guy behind him died immediately, but my dad survived, and they didn't know he was alive. The other pilots that were in the, the little conflict there all scattered when all the SAMs started coming up over Hanoi, and so they didn't know my dad had survived, and then it was three months later that they came back to my home and told me, says, well, I kind of made a mistake. Your dad's not dead, you know, he's a POW. But that's the preliminary of why I ended up in wrestling. I was in high school. I mean, I went to junior high and elementary with Hulkster, and there was about five of us that graduated from the same high school together right at the same time, myself, Dick Slater, Austin Idol, uh, Mike Graham and and Terry. And so when I was in high school, when I'd gone from junior high, I was in the ninth grade when he was shot down and in 10th grade, I met Mike Graham. 
And Mike Graham sat right beside me in a biology class. And, you know, I was a wrestling fan. I watched wrestling on Saturday afternoons and Sundays and stuff. And so, I mean, you know, I knew his dad, Eddie Graham. Um, of course, Mike's name was Gossett. That kind of threw me at first. But we sat in a little desk together, two people desk, and we became really close buddies. And in that time period, uh, I, I went home with him a few times and started working out in his garage and I met his dad and his dad was was just really a great guy to me and I, I really felt like it was because of what my dad was doing for the, his country and sacrificing his freedom and he realized I didn't have anybody to give him any fatherly advice or take him and teach him things and I'm 13 years old now I'm, now I'm 14 in high school and anyway he just took a liking to me. So he gave me my first jobs. I mean, you know, I was picking up wrestlers. When I turned 16, I started picking up wrestlers at the airport and taking them to the arenas, taking them to their hotels. I mean, I became real close friends with guys like Terry Funk and Harley Race. And I mean, you know, the list goes on and on of the guys that came into this area, even Joe Lewis, the boxer that came in and refereed one time. But I mean, you know, I was really impressed with them but I had no interest in being one. Um, I went all the way through high school. And when it come time to graduate, Eddie goes, well, what are you going to do? And I go, I don't know. I said, you know, uh, I, I just want to be rich. <laughs> what, what do you think? And he goes, well, <laughs> I don't know. And he never offered wrestling, but at the same time, he was trying to help me out and figuring out my life. And I said, ah, a doctor, lawyer, Indian chief, what makes the most money? <laughs> And so I picked to be a doctor and I didn't even start <laughs> thinking about being a doctor till I went away to college my first year and um, put down pre-med. When, when I realized you had to have prerequisites, I mean, you know, every class <laughs> I showed up in, I'm looking at them and they're going, well, get your slide rule out, get your, you know, protractor out, whatever your lab coat. And I'm going, what? And then I'm going, you mean you don't, they don't teach you to be a doctor starting now? No, 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 no. Man, they put problems on the boards and stuff and said, okay, come back next Wednesday and have this figured. And I'm looking at it like, I'm not coming back next Wednesday. I'm, I'm scratching this class. Well, anyway, at that time, I was in college in uh, Clinton, Mississippi, which is right out of Jackson. It's actually where Ted DiBiase and his family live now. And it was a small Baptist college and not much of a program athletically and everything. And I really wasn't into athletics because at, at, at 13, I quit all athletics that I was doing because that I was told I was a man of the family and I've got a job and I never had an opportunity to compete. Well, I got on steroids in um, Jackson, Mississippi, going to a YMCA working out there. Of all people, the police officers there got me on it because, you know, I got into powerlifting. Well, I went from 170 pounds when I graduated from high school. I showed up at home for Thanksgiving and flew home and I'd grown a beard. I'd, I'd gained, I was up to 245. And I walked right wow. by my walked right by my mother when I got off the airplane. My mom's standing there waiting for me, and I walked right by her. She didn't even have a clue to what who I was. Anyway, Mike Graham was getting married, and I came and I did. I was in his wedding, 
And when Eddie saw me, Eddie goes, oh, wow. He says, you know what? I got an idea what you could do. And I looked at him, and here's the deal. People that don't know the history of wrestling in Florida, when you wanted to be a wrestler in my era, you went through a butt whipping. And I mean, not not just the playing around thing. I mean, I I said, you know, well, you know, I don't know about being a wrestler because I had seen all these guys after the matches and they had done blade jobs and stuff. And all, all my friends are saying, oh, wrestling's all fake. And I'm going, well, you know what? I don't know whether it's fake or not. And I kind of agree, but have you seen their faces? I said, <laughs> mm. I, I was pretty when I was young and I did not want to get beat in the face. <laughs> so I decided I couldn't do anything else. I mean, you know, I had my problem had been when I went to high school, mini skirts were in style. And I spent more of my time with my head down trying to look up girls' dresses than I did studying. <laughs> so at the end, like Mike Graham, like Dick Slater, like Austin Idol, the only thing that got us out of school is we could spell our first and last name and could throw an initial in the middle. And if you could do that, you're out of here. <laughs> we were in trouble all the time, and they were glad to get rid of us all. But what happened was, is after Eddie convinced me that I should get in the wrestling business, I went ahead and fell for it. And I went down to the Sportatorium here, and Hiro Matsuda and Bob Roop mm. and a few others stretched me relentlessly. It was, um, you guys don't know what hot weather is, but this is a hot place in the summer. And it had no air conditioning, no ventilation, anything, just a ring light where we filmed television and the studio. And that's where we worked out. And it was like 900 degrees. And I'm already fat from powerlifting. And I had about as many cuts on my body as an M&M. I was just <laughs> rounded. But, you know, that was the style back then. If you looked into characters, everybody was around you. You never saw a set of abs on anybody, just one ab. And so, you know, they're going, wow, man, if nothing else, we'll break this kid in and he'll be a good job guy. And that's what it ended up, I kind of thought was the end results, but I stuck it out. And for six months, I went down there and I got beat up. And when I say beat up, let me clear that up. Nobody just deliberately punched me right in the mouth or the face, but they they gave me an education and took me to school on wrestling and with no amateur background i was working with guys that were olympians and i mean you know bob group and they were stretching me and this was paying my dues which i didn't realize but eddie graham was such a stickler for kayfabe in that time this territory here i mean if you didn't witness it let me testify to it our deal was to make it look real and it wasn't about entertainment at all. No funny stuff. The funny guy that came along later on and the more charismatic guy was Dusty Rhodes. But up until then, like my mentor was Jack Briscoe and Terry Funk and Harley Race. And they didn't kid around. When we went out there, the idea was, was that everything was tight. No goofy stuff, no midget high spots, you know, just go out there and really wrestle. 
just wrestle. That's what they wanted to see. And then, you know, it, it would it developed. But for me, I remember going home as a kid and I'd been in there about three weeks or so. And my mom looks at my face and she goes, honey, you sure you want to be a wrestler? She goes, what's wrong with your face? And I said, I said, mom, it's Matt Burns. They're scrubbing my face across the mat. And she goes, well, I thought wrestling was fake. And I said, I did too. <laughs> whatever, whatever I'm learning is as real as it gets. Now she asked me, she says, well, why don't you quit? And I said, how can I quit? I mean, Eddie and Mike, and I've grown up and and I mean, you know, Eddie, Eddie liked me and Eddie respected me so far as, you know, being able to handle things and stuff. And so I, I just couldn't quit. I mean, I was stuck and I kept thinking, oh man, what am I going to do? I can't do this for the rest of my life. I should go back to being a doctor. <laughs> Even if it's a, vet, a veterinarian, maybe I can do that. But anyway, I stuck it out. One day, Eddie pulled me aside and said, you know, kid, um, we're going to change things today. He says, uh, you've earned our respect, and we feel like you'll protect the business. What I do is I teach um, a respect for my industry, and by what you had to go through to get in it, when somebody comes up to you and says, hey, man, wrestling's fake, you're going to go, hey, man, you want to fight? Mm -hmm. Simple as that. That's all he said. And never, ever lose a fight in a bar, on the street, or nothing, or you get your notice. And I'm going, okay, okay, so I get it. But that was what it was. It was, that was what it was. It was, we were taught. And, it, you know, psychologically, it may be a brainwashing, but it worked. Because that I was totally insulted by any of my friends from school or anybody that approached me. Oh, you're one of them wrestlers. That's all fake. Oh, yeah? Let's go outside, see who comes back in. Hopefully, they didn't want to do it. Because you can't beat up everybody. But in my mind, I was confident of my ability because one of the things we learned were shooting moves. And we learned how to hook. Because in those days, we had riots. And we learned how to catch fans coming in the ring to hurt you. And we learned how to hurt them. I wasn't a guy that could go to the Olympics, but I was a guy that could hold my own on the street. And so just between wrestling, learning how to do promos, and between the, what I had learned and my size, you know, I was pretty cocky. And so I just, I did the deal. And next thing I know, here I am. And for five years in those days, you were considered green. And I was green. I mean, you know, I was wrestling seven nights a week, usually about nine times a week with two TV tapings in most territories. And so after five years, you know, you're looking at a lot of matches. Mm -hmm. And most, most of the guys that wrestled were old enough to be my grandpa. And that all of a sudden became a, a stigma to me where I'd say, you know what? How come you're still wrestling? Man, you're in your 60s, you know? And the guy goes, uh, bad marriages, um, lawsuits, um, injuries, poor payoffs, whatever it was, but they were still doing it. And I said, you know, one thing I'm not going to be is an old wrestler. I'm not going to be an old wrestler.
I mean, you know, I'm going to wrestle till whatever, and then I'm going to have to figure out something else in my life. And that, and I stuck to it, but at the same time, life went on. And I, my first match was with Chris Markoff in a small, a small town right outside of um, Tampa, south of Tampa, about 50 miles called Arcadia. And Chris Markoff, you know, wasn't like it was yesterday. It was 1972. Am I still there? Yep. Okay. Well, it was one of those things where the whole time he's going, slow down, slow down, do this, do that, slow down. But when I actually started working, I didn't learn that many wrestling moves or anything. I had already been beat up for so long. And then they taught me how to take a tackle. They taught me how to do a slam. I learned how to hit the ropes. And I learned just a few, a handful of things. And boom, it was on the job training. I learned in the ring. I mean, you know, um, fail forward is what it was because after your match, you know, you'd ask everybody in the wrestling play, hey, what did you think? Hey, did you see anything I could change? And I, I sponged, I sponged off of everybody. Jack Briscoe taught me, says, listen, the only way you're going to learn this business is to watch every match. When you're done, or if you're if anybody goes on before you, which they did, and I was always the first match. My my entrance music was the national anthem back then, but <laughs> I'd go out there and I'd watch every match and I studied everybody. And I and I saw how guys got over. And I learned that we're all just, you know, imitations of guys before us and then I learned some secrets. And one of the secrets I learned was to steal movement and reaction. And don't identify with one character. Do I, I even taught this later on when I had FCW, the developmental. I said, find five guys that you admire, you like their work, you like things they do, and pull a little bit out of each one. And after you've done that, if you've stole five different talents that you admired and respected, you're going to be you. And, and I had to really, at FCW, I had to really be careful because I'd have to say to him, hey, listen, steal moves. And I said, don't stand on the top corner and raise your eyebrow. That ain't not a move. That's the rocks. You know, that's not what I mean. I said, watch Bret Hart, the way he reacts and the way he does very strict movement and precise. Then watch the way somebody does maybe selling. Watch the way they sell and how they stay alive and they don't just die and then go from zero to a hundred, how they rebuild themselves. In our era, and this was asked me quite a few times, what's the difference? Well, our era and territorial days, we wrestled in the same cities 52 times a year. So you were repeatedly coming back. You had to be different every week. And then on top of that, it was a constant drive of so many matches and so many different talent. But we wrestled by emotion. We went out there and emotionally had to remove our audience from this mindset of this is fake, that this is real, this is good versus evil. And this is the way it's done to tell the story. And so later on and now, I say that there's not as much emotion in it, not storytelling. It's more about movement. It's about 
you know, high risk moves, things I can't do. I can't do a moonsault, would never even attempt it. I get a nosebleed if I get on the second rope. <laughs> There's no, no way I'm going up that high. So I wouldn't, I would fail nowadays, but telling a story and going out there and taking your audience on a roller coaster ride of emotion and those and convincing Jack Briscoe taught me pick one guy in that audience that looks like he's a smart ass and he's knocking you in the business and convince that guy it's real and once you convince that guy it's real the rest of the audience is going to follow suit and so that's the way I was educated and Later on, it didn't work out everywhere I went. When I worked the territories like the Carolinas and Georgia and Florida, everything was great. But when I went to Tennessee, all of a sudden, they're more into entertainment and cartoon stuff, and I'm stiff. And everybody that I worked with, example, Honky Tonk Man, Wayne Ferris, the first time I wrestled him, he come over to me and said, hey, Steve. Do I owe you money? And I'm going, what? He said, do I owe you money? And I go, no. He says, well, then why are you beating the hell out of me out there? And I told him, I said, Wayne, I was taught to make it look real. Are you really hurt? He goes, no, but I felt everything. And I said, well, good. Then the audience felt everything. But that doesn't work for everybody. And there was, you know, I had to change. I honestly had to change and before you know it, went in Rome, being a Roman, went to the fabulous ones, and pretty soon I'm doing midget high spots. Whatever it took, you just have to change. So my entrance into the business is not unique, but it wasn't something that as a little kid, I grew up wanting to be a professional wrestler my whole life. Uh-uh, I was too pretty. <laughs> So before we get to your uh, entrance into the, the AWA and leaving Memphis and everything, I, I want to ask you, out of all of the personas and everything that you've done, because I think it's fascinating that you mentioned taking a little bit from several different personalities and kind of blending them into to being your unique self, which one did you enjoy the most out of all of them that we've seen you over the years? Skinner. Wow. Skinner. Skinner was the most fun of anything I ever did. The fabulous ones were male strippers. I mean, we were Chippendale dancers, but when we peeled the jackets off, we had both, Stan and I had both had a, a you know, a, a career that had really, I was already 15 years into my career. Stan was about 10 and we were serious about the business. And we had Jackie Fargo that, basically endorsed us in Tennessee. He was a tough fighter from the uh, fabulous Fargo. So, but <clears throat> Skinner, that was my man. And it was the very first time in all the characters and all the things that I had done in wrestling when I wasn't Steve Kern. I wasn't mm -hmm. having to listen to everything that came out of my boring promo mouth. <laughs> And it was boring. I made to do a promo as a baby face in the 70s and the 80s was like watching paint dry. You got to go out there and be careful not to step on anybody's feelings. No matter if your opponent was fat, old, bald, 
I mean, you know, no matter what it was, you had to be careful. You couldn't say, well, I'm going to beat your ball. That, you know, you just insulted half the audience. And so you had to go, and here's Jack Briscoe, the greatest to me, you know, wrestler so far as just an athlete and a stud. And he, well, Mr. Soley, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to give 110% and may the best man win. What? Ah, I mean, you know, it was funny because I'm I'm following suit because that's my mentor. Now I'm doing those same born ass promos as a young guy, and Gordon Soley was the best. He'd sit off camera, looking at me, and he'd be looking like this, and he put his hand up on his head like he's falling asleep, and then he'd stick his finger down his throat. <laughs> And I'm freaking out trying to come up with something exciting to say, but it all fell in that same category, a baby face. When I got to be Skinner, oh, my God, what a great time. I go in there to do those promos in the WWF, <laughs> and I went into character. <laughs> I was an Everglade alligator poacher, homeless-looking guy that, just walked walk right out of the movie and deliver it and, and, and said I could look first time in my career that there wasn't a monitor sitting off to the side. It was right on the camera. So it was like a shield and I'm looking right at myself. So I don't have to look away and I'm freaking out going, look at you. And I'm going, I could just start talking. And if I got lost, all I had to do is just start laughing. And I'm going, this is the best thing. And I was coming up, I got a little bit racial and that was kind of tough. But I told Vince, I said, you know, Vince, you got to kind of give me some slack here. I'm an alligator poacher out of the Everglades, you know? I mean, I, I said things like when Virgil, I was wrestling Virgil, poor Virgil, the only black guy I wrestled at Skinner. But I said, you know, I'm going to tie a rope around you and drag you behind a boat and use you for alligator bait, boy. Oh! <laughs> oh, wait a minute. It gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. Oh. I said one time, I said, I'm going to debone you and make a wetsuit out of you. And man, I, you know, all of a sudden, everybody's freaking out. And Vince is going, hey, hey, lighten up. <laughs> I, I said, I said, I, I, I never had a chance to be a heel other than going to Japan in a couple foreign countries was and Stan and I healed in um, Oklahoma territory for Bill Watts a couple of times he flew us in but I I was going overboard on this heel thing and the problem I was having in the northeast part of the United States of Skinner I wouldn't never I had never worked in that part Detroit Boston Gardens uh, Madison Square Gardens Philly they were all heel fans I come out of Skinner and they I'm expecting them to boo me out of the building. They're cheering me. Sure. And I'm wrestling against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat or or Kerry Von Eric. And I'm going, wait a minute, you guys got this backwards. I'm the bad guy. <laughs> and I mean, I had a big mouth full of chew, was nothing more than licorice, but I just let it run out of my mouth. I tried everything yeah. to be a heel. I couldn't buy a boo in the Northeast. It was Steve, like totally different. Steve, so what you were just describing um, brings me back to when you were with, uh, with Stan as the fabulous right. ones. 
you guys were the baby faces. You came in, you had sharp dressed <laughs> man, you had the music video going on. And then all of a sudden the road warriors come in mm -hmm. and similar to what you were describing, animal and Hawk became, well, they were heels, but they became the baby faces. And suddenly the fabulous, you guys weren't heels, but you weren't as over at that point. And I say that respectfully. No, no, that's fine. You're right. Hey, listen, you can't hurt my feelings or insult me. I've been, <laughs> I, was, I was in the wrestling business 44 years. So I'm retired. You can't hurt my feelings or, or disrespect me because that was the roles I played. But Vern was so confused when Stan and I showed up in Minneapolis. He kept asking, I bet he asked me 10 times, are you guys heels or baby faces? I'm not, I don't, he says, I don't get it. He said, you know, he came in, it's supposed to be baby faces, but man, your characters. I mean, you know, I go, well, this is a new era, Vern. I mean, you know, uh, I, I think we're baby faces. We were in Tennessee, but it's all in what you project. You're in charge of the TV. Don't you know how to make us the baby faces? And I mean, you know, we tried everything. We even, they even put Crusher with us as a manager for a while, hoping that that would make us more baby faces. But you got to remember the Road Warriors were an unbelievably impressive team, just their size and their characters. I mean, I told them straight up, I said, I mean, I like you guys more than I like us. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Road Warriors. And, you know, it was like, oh, okay, but... Not to mention they hailed from Chicago, but they were actually from Minneapolis. Sure. Yep. First time we wrestled them in Minneapolis, every guy that worked out in a gym anywhere from 100 miles was there. <laughs> and they go, oh, oh, we know the Road Warriors. Oh, they're bouncers or whatever it was. But, you know, I looked at Stan and said, it's going to be tough. The very first night we showed up in Minneapolis was funny, too, because we went to the Coliseum there or whatever it was downtown in Minneapolis. And when I opened the babyface dressing room door, I was in front of Stan and I looked in the door and I went, uh-oh. And I backed out and Stan says, what? And I said, that dressing room's full of shooters. And I said, <laughs> the worst part is a lot of them came to Florida in my heyday and I ribbed them. And he goes, what? I said, man, I ribbed that Billy Robinson. Really. He said, I've ribbed every one of those guys in there. And I didn't know we were going to be in a territory with them. And when we walked in, <laughs> it was funny when we walked in, Stan's, Stan was upset. He's going, man, why are you into that ribbon? And I'm going like, hey, it was just a thing, brother. It's just a thing. So when I walked in, I'm looking, there's Billy Robinson looking at me when I come through the door. right? And I said, I got to do something. I dropped to my knees in front of all of them, Larry the Axe heading, all these guys, uh, the Claw, everybody. And I said, oh, um, Brad Ryan all the shooters. I said, listen, I tell you what, I apologize for anything I did to you in the state of Florida. And here's the deal. I'm at your mercy. Stan's innocent. <laughs> but what I'll do is if you guys want hot dogs or drinks or whatever, I'll, I'll always go to the concession stand. I'll buy them. I'll run errands. And if you need a girlfriend, Stan will lend you one of his. <laughs> well, of course, of course, they all started laughing. But then they started telling what I'd done to them, you know. And 
Billy Robinson had the most input because it. I did some. I did horrible things to Billy, but it was funny at the time. I mean, you know, but I mean, he wanted to learn to scuba dive as an example. He wanted to learn to scuba dive, and I'm famous for teaching a lot of guys how to scuba dive because I grew up in the water as a kid. He can't, and Mike Graham lived on the water, so I brought my diving equipment. We went over to Mike's house. I loaded him up. He looked like sea hunt, man. I had everything on him, the mask, the snorkel, the weight belt. I even put a knife on his leg. I mean, you know, so I had him all decked out. I stuck the regulator in his mouth and I said, now, Billy, just breathe through your mouth. Your nose is stuck in a mask, so just breathe through your mouth. And he looked at me and I said, can you breathe? And he goes, uh-huh. And I went, boom, and I shoved him off the dock. <laughs> he went backwards Whoa. off the dock. <laughs> and when he hit the water, he started thrashing. I mean, he kicked the mask off right away. He spit out the regulator. And he's fighting for his life because the tank's heavy. And then had him going backwards. And he's fighting and fighting and fighting. And I, I looked down I, on the dock, and I said, hey, Billy, just stand up, bro. It's only four feet up there. <laughs> Well, don't know if any of you experienced Billy Robinson the way I did, because I got close with him, but he looked, he got that mask and he got straightened out, got his composure, and he looked at me and one that one eye is going right over this way and he's going to test me, he says, You know, one day, you know, one day me and you are gonna work. And I'm gonna get even with you. And I said, Not my lifetime, I'm not working with you. Oh, you know, I, but, I can't imagine, you know, I and I'm listening to you, you know, for the last however many minutes and I'm fascinated because I'm an old school guy, you know, and I lived through the era, you know, the same stuff you're talking about right. championship wrestling from Florida and the AWA. I can't imagine walking into a locker room and seeing a guy, you, you know, that you rip, you know, that's bad enough. But when it's Billy Robinson, you, know, you got to be. I, were you wearing black pants that night? I hope. I mean, it's, let, me, let me tell you, it, it's funny how things happen for a reason. But I think if I'd have just walked in there normally, I was taught. This is the way I was taught by my 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 mentors is when you're introduced into a territory, you go in and you respectfully go to each every and every talent including referees and anybody else and you shake their hand and you introduce yourself hi i'm steve kern listen to their name and you meet them and you greet them so you show them respect well we didn't enter the dressing room that way that night you know and it was kind of unusual but me on my knees in front of all of them i had their attention and i'd never met larry the axe henning but he liked me right in the get-go. He said, man, I like this kid. <laughs> you know, I liked it. And I'm going, thank God, because I'm not a shooter. And I told him, too, I said, I don't even know how to wrestle. I said, I don't know what I'm doing in the business. Look at me. I got suspenders and a bow tie. So <laughs> no, no telling what's going to happen. But I would claim ignorance a lot. And I really use that green thing to the limit. I mean, I was 10 years in the business and if I'd have a match with somebody that thinks something was wrong, they go, I don't know what happened out there. Steve said, I'm still green. And they go, you've been in the business 10 years. How can you still be green? You've been in longer than me. And I'm going, well, 
I don't know, but I, I like the green thing anyway. So, what, what what was it, Steve, about like that one era where it was like the fabulous ones, the Fantastics, the Rock and Roll Express, like the Midnight? Or like <clears throat> there there had to be like the the male sex symbol for a good portion, of, you know, being the the, the good looking baby faces that all the ladies love. Well. Here's the thing. Jerry Jarrett was uh, the owner of that territory, and Jerry Jarrett had a great mind for the business. He was close friends with Eddie Graham, and a lot of those guys in the NWA and that National Wrestling Alliance back in those days, they had conventions and stuff, and they, they traded out finishers. They traded out ideas. They traded out angles and everything like that. Well, when I first went into the territory, Jerry Jarrett had come to Atlanta. I was wrestling in Atlanta and I was doing an angle with Kevin Sullivan on TBS and we we're baby faces and Kevin and I had a baby face match and Kevin turned on me in the baby face match. And then we had an angle that we carried around the territory Well, we wrestled in the Omni and we had some kind of crazy match with stipulations, but Kevin and I were used to, you know, getting down and brawling. And we went all over the Omni, all the way to the top we fought. And Kevin was a tremendous talent and great friend. And, and, and we really stole the show. And Jerry Jarrett had contracted Tommy Rich and had Tommy in his territory. But Tommy wasn't working out. Tommy was over like Rover on TBS. He was the strongest baby face ever. And I love Tommy Rich. But when he went back to Tennessee, it was almost like he kind of went backwards and didn't really feel like he was a part of it. And it, things didn't work out. Well, Jarrett wanted to trade Tommy Rich back to Jim Barnett. And he come to the Omni. He says, I want to trade Tommy for anybody. And Barnett says, man, just pick anybody out on the card tonight. And he said, Okay, so Jerry Jarrett watched us work, and he pulled me aside and said, "You want to come to Tennessee?" And I went, "No." I said, <laughs> "I said, man, I already know about Tennessee. I haven't even been there, but everybody told me you'll never get over Lawler and Dundee. You'll never get over these two guys." And plus, I heard your territory had a lot of cartoony matches, and I'm not a cartoony guy. He said, "No, no, we'll get you over." Well, we we took the angle. We cut the deal. We went ahead and went. <clears throat> Kevin went first. The next week, I showed up in Memphis, and we worked our angle. But, you know, it was too serious. And, you know, people were used to a different thing. And that's that's not what they were educated with. And it, it was a good match and really strong on the card. But it wasn't a money match. And <clears throat> we went for I went for about maybe, maybe six months. And they put me as Bill Dundee's partner. And they put me with a... Uh, Dutch Mantel and a couple other guys in there I teamed up with. And I was in unbelievable shape. I mean, I had abs and I had never had abs, but Kevin and I got into this regiment in Atlanta and we decided to get rid of our baby fat and have a whole different look. And I was ripped and so was he. And I show up in Tennessee and everybody's never seen the inside of a gym. And so I really stood out. So I think I had heat because of my look. And then I had heat because I was really stiff. When I whopped you, I whopped you. And I always believe two moves in wrestling should be real. A slap in the face and a chop to the chest. And Wayne said one night, Wayne Ferris said, man, you chopped me so hard. I had a back. I had a print on my back when I looked in the mirror. And I said, 
are you okay? And he goes, well, I'm okay, but that hurt. And I said, well, you'll be ready for it next time. <laughs> anyway, and I never complained about hit me back. If you ever wrestled Ronnie Garvin, you were educated. If you're going to hit somebody, be prepared. He's going to hit you back. And Ronnie Garvin would blast your ass. And so I was used to stiff guys and snug. But nobody ever really hurt me. But anyway, we got in that Tennessee and I didn't have a spot. I was just bouncing back and forth and Jared couldn't figure out what to do with me. Kevin got tired of Tennessee and left. Now I'm stuck there. And all of a sudden, Bill Dundee tells me, he said, Steve, you got to change. Man, you got to change your style. And I said, I was kind of arrogant at the time. I mean, you know, really arrogant. But I'm going, what do you mean change my style? This is the only style. And he's gone, not here. And I started back where Jack had told me to watch the match. I started watching the matches. I started watching Lawler and Dundee. And I started watching some of the top guys there. And they were entertainers. And the audience was used to a different psychology. You came out and you did some funny shit. And you got them laughing and happy. And, you know, you baby faces kind of like just did great moves. And the heels just got frustrated. And you utilized the referee a lot. And... I was used to utilizing referees, but I wasn't used to the funny stuff because I wasn't allowed to use that in the territories. I mean, working in the Carolinas under Ole Anderson as a booker, you better believe I didn't do any midget high spots because Ole would have stretched me in a mat. <laughs> but, I mean, it was the same way. I worked under Harley was a booker in Georgia when I was running. And so here I come in there and tell him you got to change, you got to change. And I just wasn't feeling it. I mean, you know, I was... I was, I, was get, I was already pretty over, but I wasn't feeling like I was going anywhere. And my elbow, on my right elbow, I was throwing a ball in the dressing room and just catching it. I throw it, and I started looking at my arm. I go, hey, your arm don't straighten. And then I started trying to get my arm to straighten. And then I kind of held my arms up over my head, and one's bent like this, and the other's straight. And I'm going, wait a minute. So I went to Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, had an x-ray, and they said I had bone chips in my elbow, whereas they had broken off. And when I tried to open my arm up, it would lock on the bone chips. Well, they operated on me, and I was out. And in that time period, Jerry Jarrett came up with an idea of having myself. And originally, it was Terry Taylor. And wanted to put you guys together and I want to make a team and I want to base it off of the old Jackie Fargo and the fabulous Fargos. Okay. Sounds good to me. I need a steering wheel on me. And so I'm all in. Now he didn't tell me all of it. He just said, wanted to put us together. Now all of a sudden there's some bow ties and now there's some suspenders. Now there's a sequin tuck. Now there's a top hat. Wow. So now I'm getting all of these things. He says, what we're going to do is instead of having you wrestle enhancement guys and slaughter them on TV, we're going to do music videos because MTV had just started. And when we started doing music videos, it was like we were rock stars. I mean, you know, it hit that Tennessee territory with something new and fresh that they had never seen. And it was like cancer. Everybody saw the success. Everybody saw how successful we had gotten. 
and we changed a lot of things. And one of the things was, was entrances to music. And we didn't ignore the audience like all the wrestlers had done in the past, just get in the ring. And we went right out into them and high-fived them and hugged all the fat girls and the skinny girls and toothless girls and everybody. And I mean, you know, we, we went the extra mile. And then we had uh, opportunity to sell merchandise at all these little shows that we ran seven nights a week. And everybody sold little small pictures and some eight by tens. Well, guess who come along and we, <laughs> we locked them in was Jimmy Cornette became our photographer out of Louisville. And that was his introduction <laughs> into the business with me and Stan and ribbed him. I'm, I was brutal on Jimmy Cornette. I don't want to listen even to his podcast because I know he'd bury my ass now. But, I mean, <laughs> I was brutal to him. He was such a mark. And he'd do these pictures for us and compile them. And then he started saying, well, you know, kind of turn around, put your butts up in the air and kind of do this. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, wait a minute. That's not a wrestling pose. And then he goes, well, who are you going to sell pictures to? And I smartened up. People that buy pictures at wrestling matches are usually women. And if you have any kind of sex appeal or anything that's in, you know, maybe borderline sex, that you're going to sell more. So pretty soon me and Stan went all out, man. I mean, you know, we started, we, we did a one picture about a year into it where we just had a towel around our waist and we actually were covered up more than most of the time but we had a towel we made 60 grand a piece that year on that picture just that one picture and it started a flood in tennessee pretty soon there was a midnight rockers and the fantastics and the rock and roll express i mean anybody that could imitate us was doing it and, and that's flattery to us. Of course, you know, you don't know it now. You think of the other, some of those teams and you think of them. Yeah, look at them two jabronis. Anyway, um, it was just, it just got way out of hand. And so, but we didn't care. We looked at it like we're the originals and we're the only two to look like men. The rest of you guys look like a bunch of little kids that, my, my sister could beat up. Look at them two guys. <laughs> so, Steve, oh, this is, this Steve, is what I say about them now. When the people say to me, says, what do you think about you and the Fantastics? And Rock? I said, well, have you ever looked a picture of either one of those tag teams and said, well, those guys look tough. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, no. so yeah. how, how did you go from Tennessee? What got you up to Minneapolis for the AWA? Okay. Well, with success comes arrogance and comes, you know, knowing your role. And I was too smart. I mean, you know, I'd had, I was educated. I, I told you I was a sponge at the beginning. Sure. I studied every angle. I studied what was going on. I rode in cars <clears throat> seven nights a week with guys that were my seniors that I admired and respected and were very successful. And I listened how to deal with promoters. And it's work the workers is a simple line as I can tell you. And if you understand that, I was taught to work the workers. And I worked Lawler, I worked Dundee, I worked Jerry Jarrett. And 
when it came time that we were doing really good and no matter where we went, we had large crowds. I don't try to be um, somebody that embellishes things because they weren't all sold out. It was just that we were drawn better than anybody had since the Fargo days or since Lawler was red hot. And so what happened was um, my wife, Terry, um, got pregnant. We lived just outside of Nashville in Hendersonville, Tennessee. I already had a daughter that was born in Atlanta that was about two years old. And my wife got pregnant and my son was born on Monday night, which was right after Memphis. And I had come home from Memphis and we went to the hospital. My son was born. The next night we were in Louisville, Kentucky. And I got to Louisville. I was just so excited. I'm, I'm a dad. I'm, I'm a dad again. And now I got a boy. Oh, man. I was like freaking out. I get in there and Waller comes up to me on my high and says, well, uh, you know, we want you guys to stay over in Louisville tonight. And we want you to do an AM radio station tomorrow in Evansville before the show. And I looked at him and I went, you want me to do what? He says, we want you to spend the night. I said, my wife's at home by herself. I said, she's still in the hospital. I got to bring her home tomorrow. I said, I ain't staying here. I said, who the hell listens to AM radio anyway? <laughs> and, he, and he looks at me and he's going, oh, it's a great talk show. I said, well, tell him to talk without me because I'm not going. So Lawler kind of got, you know, kind of bossy. He was the booker at the time. And he kind of got a little, you know, well, you got to go. You guys got to go. Just no, no, no question. You got to go. We've already committed. Uh, and he, then he went in his locker room. He went in his dressing room and shut the door. Well, we'd already had a couple of little close calls, him and I, over some things. And so, I mean, I told you I was cocky and arrogant. And that's not always the best way to be. But that I was going to stand up to the business right there. And Louisville was a packed house. We were on the main event. And I looked at Stan and I said, I'm, I'm leaving. And he goes, you what? I said, nobody's going to tell me that I'm going to go do a radio station, especially AM, when my son's sitting in the hospital with my wife and nobody to bring them home. He can kiss my ass. And so he goes, oh, well, I'm with you. And Stan was the best, man. He was one of my best partners and I'm blessed to say I had a lot of great partners and so I I went and I knocked on his door and said Jerry I said I know you're in there and I said here's the deal say goodbye to the fabs I'm going home <laughs>